And so tonight we're going to do an introduction to Job that will help us to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter in the next weeks. The prophet Joel is a very important minor prophet as he provides for us the last day prophetical scenario of, as we said this morning, of the day of the Lord, based on literal historical judgment of locusts as a type of severe devastation in the last times. He is known as the prophet of the day of the Lord. Um, all other prophets quote Joel, as we will see, regarding the day of the Lord. Um, we are told that the 12 minor prophets were gathered uh, and grouped by Ezra A.E., the great synagogue, around the year 475 B.C., called the Book of the Twelve. And the Bible distinguishes the minor prophets from the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. But we are told that the title minor prophets by some commentators was given to them um, due to their short prophetic content, uh, as opposed to the larger content of the major prophets. But um, Daniel has less chapters than Hosea and Zechariah. So really that's not a true description of distinction between them. And really um, the danger is in thinking that the minor prophets are less important than the major prophets. And they're not. The importance of the prophets is that they spoke as the Spirit of God carried them along. Second Peter chapter 1 verse uh, 1, 19-21. That they spoke... Uh, as God made his revelation known to them, all scriptures given by inspiration of God in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So that whether we are studying Isaiah, the 66 books, or we study Obadiah, just one chapter, they are equal in weight in terms of inspiration, God's revelation, inerrant, infallible. So the content in terms of the amount is not important, but the content that it's a God's divine revelation is which is, should be equally given to both titles, major and minor prophets. Now the book of Joel provides for us rich details about God's twofold judgment on the people of his day in Judah and then future of the last days. So again, as we noted this morning, Joel's as uh, a man, like any other, called by God. His name means Yahweh is God. And um, here again, um, God is sovereign. He does as he wills. And he's aware of everything that goes on. And um, he uses nature and nations to manifest his will. We saw it in terms of Egypt. We saw it in terms of Assyria through Hosea. We saw it in terms of Babylon through Daniel. And we are seeing it even today as we are seeing the prophetic prophecies being fulfilled today of the last days as the whole world is coming against Israel. And yet Israel stands. And yet it's a little pimple on the map of the world, if you will, in comparison to other nations. And yet um, um, probably the best fighting army and air force of everywhere in the world at this point because they have been at war from the first day of the independence. They never have been not at war. <laughs> and they were claimed their independence in 1948. 
The prophet Joel um, is given to us here, the son of Pestuel, in verse 1 of chapter 1. And that's all we know about him. So we don't get a long genealogy of his, um, his ancestry. Um, the Septuagint calls him son of Bethuel. And uh, his name is common. Um, 20 times, 13 of those are distinct individuals. Um, some people try to ascribe the authorship of the book of Joel to the son of Samuel in, um, in the book of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 8, 2. But if you read the content in the context of Samuel's sons, they did not walk with the Lord. And so, again, there's, here we get that it's Pestuel and not Samuel's son. So again, sometimes people just make connections by name without doing the um, homework and they come up with wrong things. Um, the man Joel was probably the most, most likely from Jerusalem or close by, even as uh, God will use him to declare many things inside the book. And sometimes, and the only way we can determine certain things about a book is by reading it over and over again and, and pulling out of it only what's there. That's why it's called inductive Bible study. You, you make observations, you jot down notes, and you write key words and, and key places. And from that, all the evidence, every little book, every big book is like a crime scene. You cord it off and you scurry and you turn every little rock and you look everything in there. There is nothing outside of the crime scene. There is nothing outside of the book that will determine what it is. Everything is in the book. So it takes time and diligence to read it over and over and over again. And everything that is pulled out and observed and marked down must be observed and interpreted in the context of that verse, of that chapter, of that entire book. Otherwise, it becomes a subjective uh, understanding and interpretation of it. Um, he speaks repeatedly about Zion. Uh, he addresses the children of Zion. Uh, one time, Judah and Jerusalem, uh, he mentions. He addressed the children of Judah and Jerusalem together. He mentions the priest. Uh, this is all in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 2, over and over again. So, as we look at the internal uh, content, we see that he was from Jerusalem again. We just got done with uh, Hosea, and he was ministering to the north. Now we have one who's ministering to the south and is from there. And um, he mentions the priest in chapter 1, as we'll see, in uh, chapter 1, verse 9 through 16. Um, the message of Joel, or the messenger Joel, is, is one of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament, as we said, and, and one of the nine pre-exilic prophets, meaning that he spoke before the exile. Um, that's Assyria or Babylon. Um, there are six minor prophets prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom by Assyria, 722 B.C. You have uh, Obadiah, 845 B.C., Joel, 835, Jonah, 765, Amos, 760, and Hosea, 740, um, Micah, 735. And then there are three minor prophets prior to the captivity of the southern kingdom to Babylon, uh, and as you know, the first one was 606, second one is 596, and then 586, so you have 
three of them, the final one is 86. You have Nahum in 710 BC, and you have Sephaniah in 625 BC, Habakkuk 608. That leaves us with three minor prophets after the return of the captivity from Babylon, from 536 to 425 BC. You have Haggai, 520 BC, Zechariah, 520 BC, and Malachi, 430 BC. And that takes care of the prophets, um, the minor ones. He is one of the six minor prophets, and again, he doesn't give us a date. Uh, the other ones are Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Malachi. It's nice when the prophets do give us a reigning king, north and south, or at least one of them, so we can kind of put them more exact. But again, when that isn't there, you have to look at the internal uh, content of maybe locations, maybe events, maybe the enemies that are, are there, and uh, try to work it out. Um, Joel is believed to be the second minor prophet, again, as we said, in chronological order, uh, if in fact Obadiah was first and Joel is second, again, he is the, uh, the first of the writing prophets because uh, not all prophets wrote down their, their prophecies. Can you imagine if Elijah and Elisha wrote their book of all that goes on? Now we have records in Kings of the history, but uh, things that went on and we get some incredible stories of both of those men, uh, things they were involved with. Um, Joel was the prophet of God. Very clear in chapter 1, verse 1. It says the word of the Lord came to him. In chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 11, uh, the Lord gives his voice to his army. In uh, 2.12, um, it says, uh, now therefore says the Lord. So again, these men of God did not speak of their own impulse or origin. In uh, 2 Peter uh, uh, chapter 1, 19-21, it says of, the, uh, it's of no private interpretation. That's a bad translation, uh, sadly, in the King James and the New King James. It, 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 it means of no private impulse or origin. And the following verse explains that, for they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So in other words, they were normal men as you and I uh, in their daily lives. But when God anointed them to speak forth or to record the word, the Holy Spirit was upon them. So they did not write with air or of their own origin, but the message came from God to them and through them in the writings or the proclamation. Now, no one today speaks like that. We believe God's spirit to be upon us as we minister, as we study, as we preach, but we're not inerrant, we're not infallible. Okay? There's a whole different thing. Now I say this because there are a lot of people today that love to claim the title of prophets. Okay? And it's being thrown around a lot today in the church. As if they speak with some higher authority than the average Christian. Um, the only authority I have is only the same one that is given to you. My authority is limited by the Bible and so is yours. We both have the same ground rules and the same limitations and the same privileges before God. And no one can go beyond the scriptures, so that's very important. Um, the other things that uh, we move through here, we see that uh, God is speaking through him. I will pour out my spirit among all flesh in chapter 2, verse 28. 
It is God speaking through him. Again, we mentioned that 21 times the personal pronoun I is used um, in, this, in the book. And yet, all of them refer to God, except for one in chapter 1, verse 19, which refers to Joel crying out to God as he sees the devastation. So, really, all the books of the Old and New Testament, though they may bear the name of a prophet, it is really God speaking through the prophet. Uh, I think of the book of Acts, it's, we usually call the book of Acts, but it's really the, the book, uh, the book of, uh, of the Holy Spirit through the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Spirit of God upon the church and the Holy Spirit working through individuals to manifest the life of Christ proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we get, that's the only historical book we have in the New Testament. Now, the judgment of God is towards the nations and is declared to be so under the authority of God in chapter 3, verse 2 and in verse 12. In other areas, as we'll see. So, it is God who makes these judgments. It is God who makes these bold proclamations. It is God who uses the man and yet many times these prophets, they, they didn't know who they were speaking to, who it was for. And other times they did know clearly, Peter tells us. And sometimes they wrote down their prophecy and they said, they examined and they said, well, I don't know who that's for. They just leave it there. Other times they clearly knew. But it didn't matter. They were just to be the voice of God. So the primary office and function of a prophet was to be the mouthpiece of God. To speak forth the word of God to call people back to repentance. The secondary um, function of a prophet is to speak future things predictive. Usually people think of the prophet being first of all predicting future things. Not so. It's to be the mouthpiece of God to call the people of God back to him. God called prophets out because the people and the priesthood and the kings became corrupt. And God called him call them men out and anoint them so they can call them back. And then at times they would make predictive uh, um, proclamations. Now the Lord came to Joel uh, with such phrases guaranteeing the trustworthiness of his words then by the Spirit of God. And remember the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit of God only came upon certain individuals, kings, priests, and prophets, and those that God called out like in the building of the tabernacle, um, uh, Holy Avenue, Avenue and that. Uh, but the normal believer did not have the Spirit of God upon them. If you remember uh, when Moses came down, he was in the tent, and Joshua said, hey, hey there's a couple of guys, need that, uh, me that, and do that. And, me, that, and I forget the other guy. Something that almost rhymes with it. They're, they're, they're prophesying, and Moses says, Are you zealous for them or for you? Wish to God all God's people prophesy. So it was an exceptional thing. Now, the New Testament, you and I have the Spirit of God, our body is the temple of God, and we have a higher privilege than the Old Testament people. And so, but again, the Old Testament was progressive, and the New Testament is the fulfillment of all those promises. Uh, unto us, the New Testament church. Now, Joel is known as the prophet of the day of the Lord. This is his uh, absolute identity. Five times the day of the Lord is mentioned. 
We will do an entire message on this on Sunday morning. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 2, 1. 2, 11. 2, 31. 3, 14. And then in 18, that day refers to the day of the Lord. You also have the day which mentions the day of the Lord. And you have the other prophets that follow, as we'll see, that will mention the day of the Lord, or the day, or that day, referring to the same thing. But it is Joel who lays the groundwork for the day of the Lord. It's a day of gloom, a day of darkness, a day of, of, of God's wrath. It is not a day of light. It will occupy the seven-year tribulation. As we look at that message, we'll see that. So the day of the Lord really does not speak of a one-time event. But the day of the Lord speaks of a period of time that begins with Russia attacking Israel. The rapture happening at the same time. And, that, and God destroying the, the major part of that army with her confederacy of Islamic nations. And the Antichrist appearing and making a covenant with Israel for one week, seven last years, Daniel 9, 27. All that happens simultaneously. That begins the day of the Lord. Then the Antichrist appears, falls peace and safety, the man with a white horse, bow, no arrows, he conquers through diplomacy, all the stuff starts happening, he builds a temple in the middle of the tribulation, he declares himself God, Israel flees to the wilderness, Revelation 12, 6, God protects her, Everybody has to take a mark and a number that's left behind. No one can sell, no one can buy without it. At the end of that last three and a half years, God has protected Israel in the wilderness. He will bring all the Jews from the four corners of the earth. He comes back to fight the battle of Armageddon. We come with him. He sets up the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25. And then the kingdom is established. Thousand years. All of that is the day of the Lord. So you have all these events in that period of time, okay? And we'll see this more in depth as, as we look at it, but just to give you a little running thing of it. Now, Joel is quoted by Amos, Isaiah, Micah, and Malachi. Joel 1.4 is quoted in Amos 4.9. Joel 2.3 in Isaiah 51.3. Joel 2.11 in Malachi 3.2. In Joel 3.10, in Isaiah 2.4, in Joel 3.18, and Amos 9.13. So, he is the prophet of the day of the Lord. So this was the prophet Joel. Now, the time of Joel, the prophet, um, when he wrote his prophecy again, uh, because there is no date, people go all over the place with them, and so they place them early in the date of pre-captivity, as we've seen some of these things already. Others uh, late, but most scholars put them in the um, uh, second Obadiah, and in the reign of, um, of um, uh, just sh shortly after Athaliah, she killed the uh, seed of Joash, uh, of the seed royal, uh, in uh, 2 Kings 11 and 12. Um, and um, that fits best in, by what's in the internal evidence of the book and everything. 
um, important things again. Um, we don't have any reference of the northern kingdom uh, within the content or Babylon, uh, no temple of rebuilding. Uh, so it, it does fit better in Jehoiada, uh, the days of Joash. Um, Jehoiada, the high priest, um, again, his grandmother of Joash, Athaliah. You remember she was wicked and, and uh, she killed everybody and they hid um, uh, Joash in the temple for six years in 2 uh, Kings 11 and 12. And if you remember when uh, we went through it, when, when, when um, they finally put him on the throne and she came in and she saw him on the throne, she said, she said, treason! And after she killed everybody and he said, yeah, take her out and kill her outside, don't defile the temple. And, uh, and they put her to death. It is amazing what a bunch of whiny pants people are that are so treacherous and so evil when it comes to them. You know, sometimes I watch some of these unsolved cases and all that and the ruthlessness of some of these uh, individuals, what they do to people. Um, just having no compassion, no remorse or nothing. And then when it comes to get theirs, they cry like little girls. It's amazing to me. It's just always amazing. So you might put Joash reign here for 40 years from 835 to 796. And that gives you kind of the period of time. Um, the Phoenicians, the Philistines are mentioned um, uh, during that time in uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Amos the prophet confirms this fact as the judgment is given against him in Amos chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. So that, that period in there fits. Um, there's short-term, long-term fulfillments as we go through the uh, chapter uh, and verse commentary that will point out um, uh, during this time again the, the enemies were local uh, you might jot down 2nd King chapter 12 and 13 and that will give you an idea um, and he's called the ministry of Jude in Jerusalem um, over and over and over again so again um, uh, Joel uh, has his audience um, remember that the northern kingdom went to captivity first um, Isaiah was preaching at the same time as Hosea about 114 years before and uh, she was warned against following the example of her sister in the north but she didn't pay attention. And we see this true to form many times in terms of our own life and our friends and families. Times people that understand the, um, the evil, the tragedy that, that, that comes to um, personal choices by individuals and, and you hope that younger children would learn from the mistakes of the older, but that's not always the case. Now, sometimes it is, and, and we hope that it is, but uh, sometimes it just doesn't matter. Um, we are sinners, and, 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 and somehow we think, well, they got busted, but I'm different. I'm a little smarter. I've got it more together. And that's the deception. Or worse yet, that somehow God gives me license and that somehow I'm in a special class. Or worse yet, that God approves of my lifestyle that is clearly contradictory to the Word of God. And there are people like that. It's amazing to me when you talk to people sometimes. Joel had to have known Elijah and Elisha. Uh, remember, there was a school of the prophets Second uh, Kings 2, you get some of that there in um, Bethel and in Jericho. 
and um, there's where Elisha or Elijah was taken up, and Elisha was handed the mantle, uh, and uh, the um, students at the school of the prophet were amazed. Now, though there are no real specific detailed sins, the judgment of God implies the sin of the people very, very clearly. In chapter 1, verse 2, the elders are the ones more, most responsible for the moral standards. They're the ones to lead and to teach the people, which they didn't. In chapter 1, verse 5, Joel addresses the drunkards of his day, prevailing sins that are even today, things that are just um, 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 lead to other sins. Um, the Bible is very clear. Um, Hosea spoke about uh, the drunkards, uh, the, the drinking. Uh, when we get to Amos, Amos also, and it's the women who lead there in Amos, we're going to see. They're telling their husbands, come on, bring the wine. And as I look to our society today, to our nation, um, you see that women are often as debauched, if not more, than the men. The men were always dogs. Now it's the girls, too. Shouldn't even call them girls, I mean, but it's just, it's amazing. Um, and yet, uh, these young girls of 16, 17, 18, one day they're going to be mothers to some children, wives to some men. And unless God grabs a hold of them, there is no hope. Now, they repent and turn to the Lord. God is able. Okay? There is nothing that we go through that God cannot cleanse, forgive, and move on. But if there isn't that forgiveness, if there isn't that repentance and restoration, it's just stuff that people cannot handle. All you have to do is to look to our society in America as you see the family totally destroyed. It began with just a lower standard of morality through the 60s. It moved into no-fault divorce of the courts in the 70s. It moved onto just living with each other and putting off marriage in the 80s and 90s, putting the career first. It went into women empowering themselves in society and then being equals and they began to take the reign, and the men of America became emasculated. And now the biggest phen phenomenon going on right now is women leaving their husbands. The home is all destroyed. What about the kids? What about the solid base for a woman, for a man, for a marriage, for the children? It's not, so everything falls through the cracks. The only hope is that people come to the Lord and they repent and seek the Lord. Then they become a living example of what God can do through a broken life. Their thinking, their choices, their perspective, their compassion, their transformation. And God will use that to reach so many. So this was the time of the prophet Joel. 
Now, in the book of Joel and the message of the prophet Joel, it's interesting. The division of the book of Joel depends on how a person interprets it. And that depends also, to give you an idea, if you do not believe in the rapture of the church, if you move to the New Testament, then you will interpret certain verses completely different from what they should be when the rapture takes place. And it will affect that verse in that book. If you believe in eternal security of Calvinism, it will determine how you interpret so many verses that it will affect the meaning and the sense of the book. So it's important that we understand the content and good theology so that we allow the scriptures to interpret the scriptures in its context with the cultural background and with the language that it's written in, whether it be Hebrew or Greek or the few portions of Aramaic. So some interpret Joel purely literal and they just go through it. Others interpret it allegorically and the allegorical method is very spiritual and subjective and you play games with it, okay? You're really just giving it your own meaning. And still others interpret Joel strictly apocalyptical, the unveiling of just for the end times, but he's writing to a local people at a set time first, and then he makes the leap to the future. And so the message of Joel is historical, um, literally, with figurative language and prophetic proclamation. Again, chapter one, literal with figurative language. Chapter 2, Joel is literal and prophetical with figurative language having short-term and long-term fulfillment. And chapter 3 is literal and prophetical regarding the great tribulation, the millennial kingdom, as we'll see. So as you read the context, it will explain itself. But often people read a verse and they don't examine the context so then they make just connections with other verses that kind of seem to be there. And though at times what they say may be biblically accurate, it is foreign to the context of what they are drawing from. And so it's important. Three little chapters, 73 verses. But what an incredible book for us, especially regarding the day of the Lord. Now there are various divisions. Um, there's a simple division. Um, first is historical. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 27. God's wrath is poured out on his people. Very clear here, God uses the uh, plague of the locusts. Uh, as you go through there, they, they just wipe out, just clean out all vegetation. He, he speaks of them as with lion's teeth in, in verse 6 of chapter 1. They just clean out the vine and the fig tree and the apple tree, the pomegranate tree, all of them in verse 12. Just clean it bare. There, there's nothing left. And it's, the, it's not four different type of locusts, but it's the four stages of development. And we'll show you that as we move through it verse by verse. Um, secondly, you have the prophetical. 
from chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 21, God's Spirit is poured out on His people. This is for the restoration. So first there's judgment, then there's restoration. Okay? So you have the short term and you have the long term many times that we see in prophecy. Um, J. Vernon McGee divides it up this way. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 14, literal and local plague of locusts. And then in chapter 1, verse 15, the chapter 2, verse 32, he labels looking to the day of the Lord, and he calls it a prelude prior to the day of the Lord. And then chapter 3, looking at the day of the Lord, and he, he names that the postlude. And he divides that last chapter, verse 1 through 15, of the Great Tribulation, and then verse 16 through 21, the Millennial Kingdom. Um, but again, there's many ways you can divide a book depending on how you see different things, but the content is not going to change. Let me give you um, uh, my division. The message of judgment dealing with the past, chapter 1. Verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 11. In fact, my points this morning follow this outline. And I label it past, even though it's the present judgment, because when he's speaking in chapter 1, it had already taken place, and the description is of the devastation. It was that present judgment. But it was past now. Then you have the message of repentance dealing with the present in chapter 2, verse uh, 12 to 27. Because God brings judgment to bring people to repentance. God declares His word that people will repent. That's what God is looking for. God is not just merely wanting to point out some evil or to condemn people or to just make them squirm. Now you and I like that. But God doesn't do that. You and I can do that and we would do that and we do do that at times. But when God points out sin, it's that people might repent. If they don't repent, then judgment comes. And he gives an opportunity for repentance. That's the God that we serve. And then the third division is the message of hope dealing with the future. In chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 21. So it's an interesting little book of three chapters. Pick your division. Work through it. Read it over and over again. Come up with your outline. Now, let me give you some key verses. I've already given you the day of the Lord that appears five times. Okay? And then the sixth one in verse 18 of chapter 3, that day. That is indicating for the locust plague in chapter 2, 11, and 25, and for the end of the present age in Joel 2, 31, and the divine judgment near uh, upon the nations at the end in chapter 3, verse 14. So the day of the Lord is what was happening, but we're going way forward. So the prophet jumps from the present to the latter days of the great tribulation, things that will go on in the second coming. Um, the alarm for warning Chapter 2, verse 1, another key verse. God never sends judgment without first warning. You have him giving Noah 120 years to warn the world. 
how long would you have warned the world? When you knew that they weren't going to repent in 120 years. <laughs> Amazing. God's warnings are in order to avert judgment. He doesn't like to bring judgment, Isaiah tells us. He counts it a strange or unusual way to move. He would much rather forgive. Chapter 2, verse 12, the call to repent. It is an acknowledgement of one's sin against God. It is one's turning from one's sin and abandoning one's sin, a renting of the heart, not of the garment. It is through the conviction of the Spirit of God. So I acknowledge my sin, I confess my sin, I abandon my sin. And I ask God to forgive me. And he regenerates me. And he gives me a new divine nature. Able to live the life of Christ. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 through 4. Crucify with Christ. Nevertheless I live. Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Presenting my body a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Which is my reasonable service. In Romans 12.1 and 2. In view of all that he's done for me. Verse 29 of chapter 2, the promises of, of his spirit for the church age, even as Peter quoted it. This is that we've spoken of the prophet Joel, and we'll look at that as they accused him of being drunk with wine. It was only 9 in the morning. And it also looks forward to the outpouring of the great tribulation. God will pour out his spirit, and there will be a great revival. During the great tribulation. The number of Gentiles that will be saved. Incredible. In chapter 2 verse 27 and 317. They would know that he was the Lord their God. So in other words. In repentance. In turning to God. Israel will know. That God's in the midst of them. As they realize they're deceived by the Antichrist and they flee to the wilderness. As the Lord gathers them from the four corners of the earth. As he pours out his spirit upon them in Ezekiel 36 and 37. As he takes them to himself, that wife that's been put away by divorce, restored, reconciled. And Israel experiences all that God promised to them. In the millennial kingdom. He dwells in the midst of Israel. He dwells in Zion. Uh, chapter 3 verse 17 says. So. This is the book. And the message of the prophet. Job. Again three little chapters. But so much in it. It's so important. And again, the interesting thing, again, when people speak of the day of the Lord, you have him as the base, and then the other prophets, Zechariah 14, speaks much about the day of the Lord. Um, you have many of the prophets speaking about it over and over again. And so, in the week to come, read Joel over and over again. And uh, it's only three chapters. Break it down, see how you put it together, mark the 
natural divisions and where the themes change and, and key words and, and, and key terms that turn the verse over, whatever it may be. Um, you can go up in the bookstore and get a, there's a, an inductive Bible study that we've put together. Different steps on how to do inductive Bible study. It shows you how to do it all. And uh, it's there for, for your taking so that you can learn to study the Word of God. And um, you don't just read it and make a comment on it, but that you roll up your sleeves and do some study. And so, Job, looking forward to going through him verse by verse. And then we, as we look at the message of the day of the Lord, and maybe we'll do a message on uh, that key passage of chapter 2 of the, uh, of the Spirit of, of Job, of God being poured out. That is, um, uh, was poured on the day of Pentecost and how it affects the church, what it's really talking about. There's a lot of confusion about tongues um, in, in Christian circles, uh, misunderstandings about it, and how the ultimate fulfillment will be during that time of great tribulation, as God will be so merciful to many who call upon His name. Father, thank you for your grace, your love. Thank you for tonight. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to deal with us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And so, Lord, we do pray for the needs that are here. And Father, we pray if there's anyone present or over the internet, that you would speak to their hearts. Lord, that they might just um, call on your name as they see themselves in need of forgiveness. And Lord, uh, being separate from you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to turn from your sin. If you believe that Jesus is God who became man, and that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, then the Bible says you can call upon him and he will save you. It doesn't mean that, um, it doesn't matter what you've done. It means that you realize that he died and he became sin for you for all that you've done and that he can forgive you of that by his precious blood. And then he will begin to work in your life through that new birth and start rearranging some things in your life. He will give you his spirit. He will give you his mind. He will give you his word. And he will begin to do that work and do some house cleaning. That's what he does with every individual. And so if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him, and he's gonna save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me your brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as Lord and Savior, in Jesus' name, amen.